talk about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way it might be really good. Wow. sucks a movie by movie and television series by television series hurtled through the marvel cinematic universe this time we're stepping outside the marvel cinematic universe and into sony spider-verse for a look at venom let there be carnage originally released in september 2021 and we know for absolute certain this time that it takes place somewhere between eternals and spider-man no way home although sadly eddie brock has yet to meet arisham the judge I'm Tim Worthington, and we'll be finding out what I thought of Venom Let There Be Carnage shortly. Meanwhile, joining me to give his thoughts on Venom Let There Be Carnage is the musician Gareth Hirons. Gareth, where can people find you? Well, I play the bass for a hardcore band called Codebreak, so you can find us on Spotify and Bandcamp. I've recently done some recording with them, so that's quite exciting. I also co-host the podcast Retrospecticus with my friend Tom Williamson. The Simpsons and Modern History, together at last. And you can find us wherever you find good podcasts, and some of the places you find bad ones. Okay, so before we go any further, Gareth, what happens in Venom Let There Be Carnage? A lover's tiff splits Eddie Brock and his alien goo monster up at exactly the wrong time, as absolutely the last person that should have an alien goo monster gets an alien goo monster and goes on a deranged rampage with an escaped mutant. You know, all that normal stuff. Well, it's going to be interesting to find this out, given that we kind of covered this a little when you were on here to talk about the original Venom film. But Gareth, how much did you know about Carnage before you saw this? Well, and I'm not sure what this says about me, but Cletus Cassidy is a character I've always found fascinating because he's a deranged serial killer. And that makes him a really unusual fit within the often softer world of comic books. You know, you have the supervillains and tyrants and dictators and career criminals. They've all got motives or reasons. A great deal of them have acted heroically or even change alignment in their time but not cassidy he's just real world evil random death and chaos and originally had no real reasons for being that way his original origin is actually in the film and is told in a very sharp little animated sequence i think the bit with shriek is grafted on for the movie though i could be wrong about that and his supervillain origin story isn't like raised from space or time travel or scars it's just being insane and that's something that's uncomfortably possible admittedly we don't all have alien goo monsters but you know other than that i think unfortunately with the recent glut of symbiote comics they've actually retconned his backstory so that his ancestors were worshippers of null the god of the symbiotes so that's all ruined hooray 
But yeah, it's interesting because I've always liked that they had the good sense to look at Venom as not exactly evil. A combination of two beings with a great deal of malice towards Peter Parker, but they actually work through it and become less of a slave to their own anger. So this gives the comics an opportunity to explore somebody with no morals and no control and ultimate power. And with increasingly macabre results, I would say they're some of the heaviest bloodshed and body counts in the Marvel Universe outside of the Punisher. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the kind of retconning of his origin story because one thing that really struck me about I agree with you that it did not need that additional element to it because you know it's simply enough done in the movie in that basically Eddie goes to interview him for a newspaper feature which he's got a different malign intent behind to what eventually happens but they get into a fight and he draws blood from Eddie and ends up infected with a symbiote but in the comic it's literally just Eddie has to escape from prison and accidentally leaves a bit of venom behind which infects Cletus Cassidy which is a brilliantly simple way of doing things I mean you mentioned the shriek business that's kind of extrapolated from the backstory of their relationship it doesn't quite as you suggest go as far back as it does in Let There Be Carnage but you know that ties in with the real major thing about this for me is that if you take out the end credits and you know the intro fanfares which are about 8 million at the start it's basically 90 minutes which is half an hour shorter than the original Venom film at least it rattles long it gets straight into what's going on there's no messing about and I found a really interesting element to that which is that it was directed by of all people Andy Serkis who obviously most people know better as an actor and obviously is Ulysses Claw in the Marvel Cinematic Universe but apparently he wanted to make it brisk anyway but they finished shooting literally just before lockdown they'd actually started post-production and so he was working on it remotely and apparently it's the whole effect of you know everyone having nothing to do but watch stuff on streaming and he was thinking a lot of these things I'm watching are just too long this is going to come out when cinemas reopen and people are going to want quote a thrill ride and that's exactly what it is there's been some criticism of it for not being the most heavyweight film in the world but I think given the timing it came out because he apparently cut 15 to 20 minutes out of his original edit while working on it during lockdown and I think it's all the better for that absolutely 97 seven minutes long in a world where the Batman goes three hours including one entirely black car chase and something in the way by Nirvana twice in its entirety you bring a 97 minute thrill ride like you say into a world of bloated superhero movies I could not be happier well funnily enough Morbius which was made before this but came out much later and there's a whole story there as you can find out in the episode on Morbius that's also I mean it has its problems but it is 90 minutes pretty much and Sony seems to be skewing in that direction with a lot of their outputs actually which I am finding a very interesting change of direction in the modern world where supposedly a film's not worth releasing if it's under two hours it's interesting that there is a push towards that now obviously people are going to falter at first and not going to get it completely right but I'm all in favour of a move back in that direction absolutely I mean I've never seen Morbius but I would imagine 90 minutes of constant morbing is about all I could take I would say that I don't think Let There Be Carnage was massively well received I mean certainly better than Morbius but I really liked it just a, a quick spoiler there on what we'll be about to discuss yeah that is interesting because it does seem to have had a mixed reception 
Jackson at best. I really liked it. I enjoyed it. And I think what's interesting is, I think it's actually lifted the reputation of the first Venom film, which is seen as a bit of a misfire, given that they got everything much more right with this. I think people have seen a lot more value in the first one, in that the disparate elements don't quite add up in that. You know, the humour and the darkness and so They're all very kind of distinct from each other. But the fact they all work together so well here, I think people have gone back to that and thought, certainly as I did, that's not quite... I wouldn't even say as bad as I... I think people thought it was just there, really. But there's been a lot of warmness towards the initial one now, I think. It seems like everything in that first one was a warm-up for this one, including having a less well-known symbiote as the final boss, effectively. The most important thing to state, though, and I know people will expect us to discuss this, let's just address the elephant in the room right away. Yes, they have changed Cletus Casty's hairstyle from the first film. If you've only seen the first one and not the second, you're thinking, I hope he's not going to wear that terrible wig all the way through. Don't worry, that was axed apparently directly due to bad audience feedback. I thought I was the only one that was getting hung up on that but apparently I wasn't. It wasn't a great look in his appearance in the post credit scene in the first one, but apparently Woody Harrelson as well, when he read the script, because it's a whole interesting thing about the storyline was actually written by Tom Hardy. He's one of the best things about Sony Spider-Verse. He's really, really given a real depth to Eddie Brock and to Venom, actually, but it was written by Kelly Marcel, who is quite an up-and-coming British screenwriter, but also used to act and was in TV's Wolf, which doesn't seem to <laughs> add up to me that just doesn't seem to but apparently Woody Harrison the reading the script thought the hair needs to be different genuinely in terms and to be honest with you that might sound comical but he is such a good actor and he is brilliant in this he's got that exact balance between knowing it is silly and in a very macabre sense camp and a lot of fun and also playing this really nasty evil character because one thing again as I say I think they got right in the first one is the humour isn't just there to lighten the darkness it's actually a part of it throughout one of the bits that really made me laugh was him walking away from prison after he's become carnage singing Johnny Cash's San Quentin but in a really kind of like menacing way it's it's funny but it's also absolutely terrifying you genuinely feel like you don't know what this guy on the screen is going to do next absolutely it reminds me of him in Natural Born Killers now I think Natural Born Killers is a much better film than it's given credit for and his performance in that is what makes it really and he's sort of doing that with a side order of well carnage essentially and it really works he isn't given a great deal to do but he adds something special to everything. Yeah, it just feels like he's putting everything into it and the results are right there to see. Well, I think you're spot on with the Natural Born Killers thing because I think the absolute chemistry in a really upsetting way between him and Naomi Harris as Shriek. And interestingly, it was mostly shot in London which is why there's so many British actors in it, presumably mostly friends of either Tom Hardy or Andy Serkis but they really are redolent of Mickey and Mallory from Natural Born Killers. That really came across to me but not in the kind of they're just trying to copy that way in the sort of adapted for this very different because this is not much like Natural Born Killers as a film but it's like they've harnessed the power of those central characters and made them just think very different. It might explain Shriek's presence in the first place. Now Shriek is a character that gets some I was going to say screen time but page time with Carnage in a few of their adventures which I always find a bit odd because the whole point of her is that her power is almost directly a 
against symbiotes in terms of sort of sonic screams, which they're not big fans of. But she doesn't seem to get a great deal to do. She feels a bit like a fetch quest, and that's a shame for a character, particularly a female character in this day and age. It kind of gives an excuse, though, for Carnage and Cassidy to have their own sets of arguments with each other. And as we found from Eddie and Venom having arguments throughout this film and the previous one, that's actually quite entertaining. So, from that point of view, certainly a useful device. But I'd rather she were more than that. Well, I was going to mention how much I love the relationship between Eddie and Venom, because there are so many. I still laugh every time I think about Venom trying to lift Eddie's spirits by saying, You know what cheers me up in the morning? Sausages! (laughs) Venom doesn't want Eddie to eat ice cream because he gets brain freeze as are you pen pals with an ant? The fact that Eddie actually quite likes Anne's new boyfriend, Dan. I mean, he's not happy that she's getting married to him, but he's got a major problem with him. But Venom hates him. It's just because he's so defensive of Eddie. And, of course, there is the line that's become a meme. That is a red one. (laughs) I mean, the good thing, Venom does get won over by Dan, as do the audience, I think. When we discussed the first film, I mentioned quite liking what I saw as a realistic portrayal of a post-relationship state, which obviously moves on a little bit with Dan and Anne getting engaged. And Dan is once again portrayed as perfectly reasonable and probably a better choice and kind of almost a cipher for the audience getting dragged unbelievably into this world of aliens and killers and so on and so forth and struggling to keep his head above water it's really nice that he gets to be not exactly a protagonist but at least part of the good guy team in this well he kind of saves the day in terms of i'll come back to what i make of the whole fight sequence in a minute because i have some issues with it But the fact that Venom actually says, prepare to die, Eddie says that's more like it. He says, no, me and you, we are going to die. (laughs) Because obviously Carnage is so out of control. But it's Dan that appears, having heard that the symbiotes don't like fire and sound, who sets fire to basically thin air in the church (laughs) where Cletus Cassidy and Shriek are trying to get married, and then rings a big massive bell. And then briefly hosts Venom to save Eddie. He gets to be not a good guy, just a guy. Yeah, it's heroism of the level of a normal person, essentially. It fits his character really well. Obviously, got to also mention Michelle Williams again. Probably had less to do in this film than the last one, but still really good and got to be She-Venom again. I mean, there is the danger of having too many symbiote people in, especially now, as we'll come back to, Venom is actually somewhere in the main Marvel Cinematic Universe, and if the comics or anything to go by flash or mj you better watch out but also in this they kind of stephen graham as a detective patrick mulligan is very clearly on the way to becoming toxin yet another symbiote so there is the possibility of having too many but i like that they had Anne in the venom guys again because i think she plays it really well agreed i say either i say either i say neither neither either neither neither Let's call the whole thing off. Ow, 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 ow. Potatoes, I like tomatoes. Are you pen pals with an ant?
So we've discussed how quickly the film moves along. And in the first 15 minutes, you get like Casty's backstory. He meets Eddie. Venom solves the crimes. Casty gets the death sentence. Venom and Eddie have an argument. You know, all of this. It's only a quarter of an hour. It's front loaded everything you need to know about the setup of the film, except for the love triangle, which turns up on cue about five minutes later. None of it drags, except I do think a bit too much time is spent on it. It's something that I do actually enjoy, don't get me wrong. When Eddie and Venom break up, and Venom almost has an I will survive sequence, where he sort of goes off to a Mardi Gras-esque party and kind of exercises his rejection demons, which is a lovely sort of thing, especially because he literally can't live without people, and he's trying to prove he can live without someone. You can easily read the main thrust of this film as a troubled romance between Eddie and Venom, which is probably the closest we'll get to explicit queer representation in a superhero series. It's not an especially nice example, as it is at heart a toxic relationship based on absolute dependency, but it is one that's blossoming into mutual respect as time goes by. I think they do a really good job of getting that across. No, I think that's very interesting. There is a move towards representation in both... Well, I mean, this is the only real example of it in the Sony movies, but certainly in the main Marvel Cinematic Universe. But as a number of guests on here have said, it hasn't quite gone far enough yet. It is through filters or, you know, it's not explored enough. It's just not treated as just an everyday part of people's lives. And analogies are fine, but at some point they've got to do something... Well, when I say do something explicit, that's a little bit of an unfortunate phrase, but you know what I mean in the sense of explicit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, before this, probably the closest we got was Deadpool with Negasonic Teenage Warhead and her girlfriend. But even that is... Whilst that is called out as a relationship it's not important essentially which itself is quite good don't get me wrong but yeah it's moving in a direction where it, it, I think they're going to have to signpost it a little more well the one bit of the whole movie that I really felt didn't quite work is the big climactic fight sequence which you know the main criticisms I've seen that online are it is CGI thing hitting CGI thing which I don't have a problem with and I actually think I like the way that the symbiotes are rendered in this particularly the bits where Venom is attached to Eddie but bursting out and it is clearly a combination of I call it emu venom you know like a <laughs> sort of puppet that either him or somebody else is controlling that they've later put CGI on and I think that really makes all the difference because it gives Tom Hardy something to react to it just feels more fluid more believable I mean people have said people have said oh it doesn't look real how real is a big alien malevolent blob supposed to look <laughs> Yeah. No, he doesn't see many of them in real life to compare it to. Yeah, you've got to take these things with a pinch of salt, really, haven't you? I mean, we all remember when Tom Hardy was on the word and Venom attacked Snoop Dogg. Well, that, ironically, would work better than the actual big fight sequence because my problem with it is it's tonally all over the place. It feels stop-start. Like something will happen, then there's a reaction, then it happens again. In the middle of all that, they've gone to all the trouble of casting V. Shearsmith as the priest, who doesn't seem to actually do anything. <laughs> to the extent extent I had to check in the end credits that it actually was him. So I don't quite understand what's happened, but it just feels a bit, not flabby, but frustrating. Like, it's constantly up and down, and I think it doesn't quite come off because of that. No, I agree with you. It also felt a little bit like they worked backwards from wanting to have a climactic fight in a church in some ways. Like, they just had this idea for that sequence, and then, then sort of built everything around it. 
It's certainly, it's visually impressive, but like you say, it's stop-start, and I don't know, it kind of just left me slightly wanting more. I can't put my finger on exactly what. Totally, it didn't seem to fit the rest of the film, but in an odd way. This is a lot more of a comic book film than the original was, but this, I don't know, the end just seemed a little bit, and again, we're talking about alien goo monsters in a film here, and I'm going to use the word, it didn't seem realistic enough. I don't know, there's something in that, there's something in that. Returning to Reese. Shearsmith's casting. Last time I saw a casting like that, which nearly made me fall out of my cinema seat, was seeing David Schneider in Mission Impossible. Euro tunnel driver. He just has to react in fear to a helicopter crashing in the tunnel. It's great stuff. Perhaps his greatest role. One thing I wanted to mention was, when I asked you how familiar you were with Carnage, there's a very interesting thing that's gone on that I think for a very odd reason Carnage is better known than you would expect because I don't often talk in these about the absolutely amazing Marvel Lego sets that they released to tie in. Not really, haven't done that many with the TV series. They did do that range of minifigures and we both kept getting White Vision, which <laughs> was not the minifigure I wanted at all. I wanted Captain Carter, but in a few of the sets, like for example the Daily Bugle, obviously they've been doing a Venom minifigure for a long time. They've also done Carnage quite a lot because when you think about it, you've got all the moulds and the pieces for Venom, you just do it red and change the face slightly and you've got carnage so it's quite probable given how many units these things shift that a lot of people were aware of carnage long before they saw this yeah I mean carnage has stayed relatively active in the comics I know everything's gone symbiote crazy in Marvel comics more recently but he always seemed to have a presence ticking along and also diversified out of Spider-Man comics in the end and into clashing with other heroes so yeah might have a bigger footprint than his sort of late big screen day would suggest. Well, speaking of late big screen debuts, as a way of getting to the post credit scene, we really need to talk about the release history of this, because as I say, it was pretty much... It wasn't edited before the pandemic started, but literally all the filming and all the pickups and so on, the finished. It was originally scheduled. I don't know when it was originally, originally supposed to come out. Nobody seems to know that. But when everything started getting delayed, it was moved to October 2020 and then to June 2021, during which time apparently Andy Serkis thought, great, we can work on the visual effects a bit more. Then September 2021, then October. And now with Morbius being repeatedly delayed as well, the obvious assumption and I thought this as well was it's obviously not very good and they don't want to release it but as we later found out it was literally well, I mean I suppose they were trying to fit it between Eternals and Spider-Man No Way Home it ended up being between Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings and Eternals but you could see what they were aiming for but it brought us in to that incredible post credit scene when I went to see it nobody was expecting it I spotted what was happening and thought is that actually happening I'll come back to that in a minute but there was a waiver ooh in the cinema which is a you know, great feeling after we've all not been able to go to cinema for so long, but I'll let you describe that scene. We see Eddie Brock and Venom in a hotel, I think down Mexico way is the implication, or certainly a long way from where he previously was, having enjoyed the beach. They are in their hotel room, there is an effect, and then everything is slightly different. 
and it's not their hotel room. And in the background, we see none other than J. Jonah Jameson on the television. Yes, as a prelude to, well, ultimately, Eddie only ended up making a brief appearance in Spider-Man No Way Home. The reasoning for that apparently being a sound artistic one, which is that A, they thought, we've already got five villains who were nasty bastards. It would be a stretch having to have this guy who's not actually evil in it and try and work him into it. And also the fact that they all get cured of their powers. And they were like, kind of, well, we don't want to take Venom away from Eddie because, you know, there's a successful franchise there. So it ended up with the really amusing post credit scene in Spider-Man No Way Home where basically he's trying to catch up with what's happened in the whole Infinity Saga in a bar from a barman and then disappears back to his world. But it was so exciting because, as you say, there was that juddering effect, which at that point, I don't think the trailer for Spider-Man No Way Home had come out, so we didn't know it was the same effect as in that. While that was happening, because they were watching a kind of telenovela on the TV making funny commentary on it and then I remember thinking from the corner of my eye is that J.K. Simmons? Is that J. Jonah Jameson? And yes, it was. And it was quite a thing. Because at that point, the suggestion still was that these things were happening in another state while the Marvel Cinematic Universe was going on. I think that was the original idea as well, certainly for the Venom films. And there was no thought that we were going to actually properly cross over. And then ultimately they have done. And obviously Sony are trying to build their own, because they've got films with Craven the Hunter and Madam Web and people like that coming up. And also in Morbius, it's not quite a how he knows about Venom but there is a joke where he pretends to be Venom so yeah, they've got that crossover of their own going on but that felt really thrilling at the time I mean I don't think anyone it was the worst kept secret in the world that there would be three Spider-Men and no way home but still nobody really knew what was going on I love the fact they slipped the big reveal into something that wasn't even one of their films see I saw them in the wrong order I saw No Way Home before I saw Let There Be Carnage I'm kind of glad that I did it that way round because I think if I'd have seen this sequence before Spider-Man No Way Home I'd have been disappointed that he wasn't in it more. Obviously they are continuing with the Venom franchise and given the contentious post credit scene of Morbius where they tried to do something interesting that didn't quite work where he meets up with Adrian Toomes and they basically say yeah let's get a squad of bad guys together to like do good for people. <laughs> Obviously Eddie is going to be part of that so it'll be interesting to see what happens but I actually think given the I would say initially negative reactions to the first Venom movie. I'm surprised they went ahead with this, but I'm really glad they did because I think second shot at it, they managed to get right what they were obviously trying to do in the first one, which left me liking it, but not loving it. And I'm not going to say it's like a good second album. <laughs> that would be like comparing it to Modern Life is Rubbish or something, which... <laughs> I am not doing, but I do feel I'm glad they got the chance to have another go. Uh, a very promising lead actor and a very promising realisation of a difficult character they got wrong once before in the Tobey Maguire films, and I just think it worked. Agreed. It has a huge amount of goodwill from me, both for me liking the characters in the original comics, liking the cast they've got together for it. I think the original was only a few missteps away from being remembered a lot better. It's really good to see that they've taken the lessons from the first film and made a second film that is very similar, but I would say superior in every measurable sense. And I'll say this much, I'm far more excited for a third Venom film now than I was for a second one after seeing the first. Okay, well, there's only one thing left for me to ask now. Gareth, Peggy Lou, who's Mrs. Chen in Venom Let There Be Carnage, was also 
customer in Runaways. So, who was best? I don't even remember what customer she was in Runaways. Well, we'd have to check which customer, but it's almost certainly going to be the shopkeeper, isn't it? (laughs) Gareth, thank you, and Excelsior. Excelsior. If you've enjoyed this, don't forget you can buy more editions of It's Good Except It Sucks and plenty more besides, including details of my book, Can't Thinking About Me, at timworthington.org.